Blog Talk Radio. I have a great story for you today. It's an incredible story about an incredible guy who had it all, who went from nothing to becoming suddenly a very famous politician and rising through the ranks of government. And he could have been a governor. He could have been a United States senator. And from there, well, who knows what he could have been? He knows so much about so many things, different parts of the world. He he had it all. It was all right there for him. And all he had to do was not screw it up. And yet, he did. And then everything went sideways. He ended up living under the same roof with a famous gay, naked man. He goes back to Columbus, tries to reinvent himself, tries to get his life back together. He's the man who renamed French fries Freedom Fries. He's a guy who was in Saudi Arabia doing security work. He's in Iran. He knows how to speak Farsi. He's a remarkable, remarkable character, a remarkable story. And my guess is that maybe alcohol had some role to play in some of this. I don't know, but we're going to find out. I'm Dimitri, and thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to my world and my special guest, former Congressman Bob May. Bob, how you doing? Good. Now, two, it's great to be on your show. Now, yes. two things. Yes. One, I was not a cellmate of the of the Naked Survivor. No, no, we'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about you no, and no, your I, relationship I, I, with Richard Hatch no, in a bit. It's called no, a tease. It's called a tease <laughs> to encourage people to keep listening in case you get boring. Okay? So now, just, the second just, thing, though, oh, I have to tell you is Bob, the only degrading already, thing you said was that what? I might have went to the United States Senate. Oh, what a what a way to end your career. Well, Go I, ahead. I, <laughs> All right. So, Bob, a little background first on my guest, Bob Naby. The reason I'm I'm talking with Bob is because he can offer incredible insights about what's going on in government right now in Washington, D.C. Also, incredible insights regarding privacy and your right of privacy. Also, incredible insights about what the people in Iran think of us and that part of South Central Asia. Lots of interesting perspectives that you typically aren't going to get anywhere else, except maybe in his book. And the book is what? Sideways? Is that the name of the book here? Uh, when you side talk? Swiped. Side Sideswiped. Sideswiped. Uh, about the hitmen on Capitol Hill? Mm-hmm. Okay. And you're also a, uh, rec- well, I guess you're a recovering broadcaster. Uh, tell me about your uh, your radio career right now, Bob. Right. I uh, I work for uh, Ellen Ratner, and she has a uh, talk media news service. She's she's the queen of the liberals on Fox News, by the way. Uh, she's the liberal end of it. But anyway, I do political analysis, so I call about anywhere from 26 to 32 stations across the U.S. on Tuesdays and Thursdays. They syndicate out to 410 stations. So I don't report the news. I analyze it. Oh, that's so I'm, I'm I'm paid uh, to, you know, I'm in broadcasting, and I'm paid to give my opinion, which is really great. So I'm not a reporter of the news. I bring it, but I analyze it. Well, and you bring it. You do a great job whenever you bring it. What's the deal with uh, her eye? She always seems to have a goofy eye whenever I see her on oh, Fox News. She had a uh, genetic problem, and she had a um, retina detached and had a, oh maybe three surgeries or so. So she's oh. actually 
blind, uh, legally blind in one eye. Oh, that poor woman. It's really weird looking, but no one ever explains why. It's like, well, my God, did she have an accident? Or, no one ever explains that. So, all right. Well, now, oh, you, you never yeah. change. I, right, I that's true. I mean, I'm, a, I'm a viewer. I'm looking. I love going, it. What's wrong with this woman's eye? I, I, I did your show. We did some national stuff. I just, I love it. Go all ahead. All right. So, Bob. <laughs> All right, so you start out in politics with this incredible upset of Wayne Hayes, a guy who had been one of the most powerful politicians in, in, in modern-day political history. You unseat him. You start with this incredible career in Ohio where you become a congressman, and then you rise up through the ranks of Congress. You become a, the mayor of Capitol Hill. You rename French fries Freedom Fries. By the way, why did you do that? I'd do it again. By the way, I've been attacked in the last two weeks on that. I did it as a token gesture because of the rhetoric. Look, you know, Bush screwed up the entire Middle East. I understand that now. But um, our troops were over there. They were, you know, heeding the call of the commander-in-chief. And France's rhetoric was so bad. I mean, look at France now. They're bombing the hell out of everybody. But their rhetoric was so bad. I did it, Dimitri, as a token gesture, never dreaming it would become iconic. I, I just never dreamed it would become also the left's mantra, you know, uh, of uh, despising me and others. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Now, in fairness, you did. You are one of the few Republicans that I've spoken to anyway. Uh, who has admitted that uh, invading Iraq was a horrendous, horrendous mistake that we're paying for to this day. Is that right? Yes, and, and let me give you the answer that Hillary Clinton and, uh, you know, and Republicans all give, because they give the same answer when confronted. And then I'll give a di- different answer, but when confronted, they say, well, you know, Saddam Hussein was a bad guy. Well, Dimitri, so is the dictator of China. I would love us to have invaded Beijing, actually. We'd have created more American jobs. So why not invade China? You know, they're bad, too. The Sudan has killed 7 million people. Why not invade them? So the answer that they give, well, he was a bad guy, that's, that's not an answer. Here's the answer, and, and it's clear-cut. We were lied to. I lied on a federal travel form, and I pled to a felony, all right? Fine. These people lied to us, and a bunch of people died. 100,000 people died. Our American soldiers shed their blood, and they, nothing happened to them. They, nobody ever came back to stop repeating this in history and say, okay, look, we were on the floor of the house, Dimitri, with the electronic gizmos going so nobody could talk in or out or transmit, et cetera. And I wish I'd have taken pictures of the guys. They're standing down there telling us, and I still can't, I wish I could tell you what they told us, because if I did, you might have voted for it too at that time. And they stood there and told us all these things were absolute lies, or the, the, the stupidest intelligence in the history of planet Earth, one of the two. It was never corrected. What were the lies? Well, about what was being transmitted, what was taken from place. I, I, again, even though I'm a former member of Congress, when you this is classified materials, I, can't. I don't. No, no, Bob, don't, no, no, you don't understand. I don't mind. I need to know what they told you. Well, I can't tell you because if I do, they'll put me in prison. So, well, what? They, this is something new for you? Come on, man. They, they, they can charge me anyway. Oh, they showed photographs. Mm-hmm. What I would deem to be, you know, proof of of weapons of mass destruction, and based on that, we said, "Hey, you got full full force and authority. If he doesn't get rid of these things, and that's what you know everybody saw, and the, those people lied. They simply 
lied. All right. So who are those people? Are we talking about the CIA? Are we yeah. talking about Col- Colin Powell also? No, no. Col- well, Colin Powell, heck, they lied to him, too. He now says the same thing I say. Uh, Colin Powell's one of the few that comes out and says, oh, my goodness, look what happened. I mean, they, they lied to him, and he, went to, he lied to the U.N., because you know, telling their their lies, repeating them without knowing it, I've got to defend him on that. Well, it's Rumsfeld, and you've got uh, uh, CIA agents, NSA, other agencies that we don't even know the names of. You know, all, all the uh, all the intelligence gurus that uh, stood there and said, oh, "This is it." All right. And in me... my book, yeah. In my ahead. book, I do want to mention in my book um, in London. The uh, Ahmed Chalabi, who just died three weeks ago, the renegade of this entire thing, the real freak, the criminal, uh, Chalabi was sitting in London in a restaurant, and I saw him, and a friend of mine said, uh, if that man knew who you were, he would be back here licking the bottom of your shoes. That man's going to take your country into a war. Sure enough, he did. He was sitting with King Hussein's brother, and Chalabi was wanted for six banking felonies in Jordan. What was he sitting with the king's brother for? So, you know, this all... Uh, smells. All right, now, a couple couple things here. I'm a libertarian, as you know. I never understood the rationale that, well, if Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, let's say they did. Let's say they did. I mean, there are a lot of countries that have weapons of mass destruction, starting with, oh, I don't know, the former Soviet Union and China and on and on and on, Pakistan and all that. So what? Why do we go to war even then? Even if that was not a lie... I still don't understand why, and it was a bipartisan effort with Republicans and Democrats, why you still went to war. Well, I, look, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a Ron Paul guy. Uh, Rand Paul's not going to make it, but I, I liked Rand Paul, but I, I'm a Ron Paul guy. I sat in meetings with Ron Paul talking about Iran and, and other touchy countries years ago in the Capitol, all right, because he was a guy that wasn't ready to push, you know, all the buttons and pull the triggers and things. And um, and the hysteria created after 9-1-1, all this evidence that, you know, Saddam was going to do something. And it was all, and, you know, the New York Times, Dimitri, you know this, they fed into this stuff, the Washington Post, and they all fed into it or were coerced, I don't know which, so that uh, Dick Cheney could have his war and the armaments can be sold and it was about control and power and the Saudis you know, uh, they're messing up the entire Mideast. They're all involved with their oil money and their clout. So no, 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 you're, you're drifting. Of... You're, Bob, uh, Bob, are you, okay, you're, you're kind of drifting on me here. I need you to tell me why we invaded, even if we thought they did have weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, well, I'm just saying all of this comes into one picture, and it formed hysteria, and, and some of it planned, some of it unplanned. And the public's like, you know, protect us, get out there, get it. And, and that's how these things started. Uh, I mean, it, it hasn't stopped. There was an effort to get us to go launch missiles at Iran. Let's face that, this past year. So, you know, it doesn't stop. The hysteria doesn't stop. And that's what, my opinion, created this. The ability of Bush to do what they really wanted to do, which was to go in and take control in the oil fields in Halliburton. So... Uh, hysteria. That's what that's what did it. I mean, the public itself was like, "Go get them. Yep, protect us. Go get them." Well, now to and your benefit, now, to your credit, to your credit, you and Ron Paul and I think 
Otter was the other guy, uh, were the only three, I believe, uh, at least among Republicans, who voted against the USA Patriot Act. Is that true? Yes, there were less than 46 total on the Democratic-Republican side. I was one of three, me, Butch, you're right, me, Butch Otter, and Ron Paul. And when I voted on that, looked up at that voting board and saw three little red lines with a bunch of green, I remember a congressman came over to me and said, you're not going to be back. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're going to lose. I said, you know that bill is bogus. You know it's not right. You know they're going to spy on people. He said, I know, but I don't want to lose my election. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was lonely. I mean, I, I came back home, and you know, they were saying I was Osama's best friend. You know, I didn't want to protect America. Oh, yeah, I went through a lot. That's unbelievable. It really is. Now, uh, as you know, as being a libertarian, I'm a big believer in our right of privacy and how it's being inv- I'm just so upset about it being invaded by the NSA and other privacy violators. And now, because of the latest uh, terrorist incident uh, on American soil, and that is the San Bernardino shootings, now you've got a lot of uh, rhinos and some Democrats saying, oh, yeah, we need to have even more mass surveillance. We need to give the NSA more information because they weren't able to access certain phone numbers or you know phone calls or whatever, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just I'm ready to throw a shoe at the at the TV screen. So tell me what really goes on with this mass surveillance of Americans, the NSA and all these other alphabet soup agencies that are violating our privacy. Can they even be trusted? Well, no, they can't. And I guarantee you, we are being listened to, especially you and people like yourself that broach these topics are being listened to. Your Facebook, your pay-per-view, the Patriot Act allowed all that to happen, the libraries, I mean, on and on and on. Now, can we trust them? You know, Hillary Clinton recently, and let me pick on her for just a second, she recently said, you know, Edward Snowden could have done what he did back here. Oh, excuse me, Edward Snowden would have had a bullet in the back of his head. He would have been killed by our own government. He would have been, he would have never saw light of day. They would have charged him with 900 felonies and he'd have been in in some high-tech prison somewhere never seen again or down in Guantanamo. Um, there now and the other thing is does anybody really listening to you you and me today do they really think and I'm not trying to say Edward Snowden was quote the hero of the, of the decades but do they actually think we would even be having this debate today if it wasn't for Edward Snowden? Does anybody think Obama or the Republicans would have come out and said, or the Democrats, oh, by the way, hey, um, there's all this secret stuff going on. Uh, they lied to the committee right before Snowden. They lied to the committee after Snowden. They lied, Dimitri. You can't trust them at all. This no-fly list nonsense, Congressman Lewis is on it. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't. I think he should. I think. I think John Lewis should be on it. I can't stand it. That's awful. That's awful. Um, That's awful. Oh, 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 sorry. He's on it. He's a good guy. He's on it. But I'm just now. Ted Kennedy used to be on it. You can go to town with that one. Yes, yes, yes. uh, yes. No drive list. How do they come um, up with that? How do they even come up with that stuff? I don't understand how they make up this stuff. This is how it happened. Here is President Obama in his speech yesterday. Look exactly what he said. I want the no-fly list for per- persons, you know, to not be able to buy a gun. Now, he knows what I know. What they do is they started out with a very small list. Now, you get a small list of credible people. You can watch them, et cetera. There's been rock and roll band drummers on the list. There's been members of Congress. There's been innocent citizens. There have been 94-year-old women on the list. 
the government just expands it because it's the government and they're stupid, so they expand it in such a way and, I don't know, tips or travel or the computer tells them this guy's went to four countries or whatever and they throw them on the list. You can't get off the thing once you're on it. So it's we have collected so much data, everything under the sun, everything you watch, your pay-per-view, we have collected so much data we don't know what to do with it. The government, it, just, it collects it. Uh, remember that the father of the, of the guy that went to London that was going to come to America and blow the plane up, etc., he went to the American embassy and said, hey, my son is out of his mind. He's going to London. He's going to come to America. We didn't even report that. We are so bogged down in collecting massive amounts of information, and the president says, oh, we've stopped all these attacks. We might have stopped a few attacks. He's lying, too. We haven't stopped massive amounts of attacks. You know, this is data, raw data collection, and, and unfortunately, I've got friends, not libertarian, but I've got friends on the right and the left that come to me and they'll say, well, you know, Bob, now we've got to do this to make us safe. I'm like, are you kidding me? Didn't you learn from what we did before? Absolutely. In fact, here's the thing that I don't understand, Bob, and I guess I'm preaching to the choir, but I need some... You need you to fill this uh, out here for me, and that is when you look at all the terrorist attacks that we've had in America, including the so-called workplace violence, like at Fort Hood and all that, take a look at every one of them. Tell me which one the NSA was able to stop because of mass surveillance. Exactly. Exactly. But they will have you believe. I'm not saying they didn't stop something. But I, by the way, if it had really stopped something, it had leaked out. Nothing. If you tell your secretary in the government, you told one too many people. Of course, so, and they would know, want it. And they would want it to be. They to be want leaked. it to leak. Of course. So they're going to tell you this. You know, they do what they want to do. You know, why don't they release the 911 commission blanked out 28 pages? Why don't they release that? Tell you the know, they, listeners. Tell my tell my listeners about that 28 page thing, please. The 911 commission has 28 pages of that report blanked out. Now, I will tell you that within those 28 pages are allegations directly against the Saudi government and wealthy Saudi members of the royal family and a Saudi family in Sarasota, Florida. Uh, that's what's in there. Now, I, the, the exact verbiage, you, you know, again, it's classified. So I don't mind, Bob, I don't mind. Tell me exactly what's in there. I do because I'll go to prison. That you know, I don't sick. care. You've been in you prison. Don't. You're you won't used even to send it. me commissary money. I would have. <laughs> I wanted to visit you in Morgantown. No, no, no. You didn't I want mean, me if there. I go in prison this time, you, you wouldn't. <laughs> I'll send you. I, I'll send you a toothbrush. You know, whatever oh, you're that's allowed. Great. Okay. So anyway, here's the thing. In the 28, there are 28 blanked out pages, and I would like somebody to tell me two things. Why are those pages blanked out? What are they so afraid of? They involve allegations of the Saudi government and the royal family. Number two, if, if you and I blew up a building and killed 3,000 people, I promise you that my entire family and your entire family, they would sit down with them and say, what's Bob been doing the last you know, 500 years? Wouldn't they do that? Wouldn't sure. they? Sure. When the buildings went down in New York, the entire Bin Laden family was put on private jets and flown out of this country. Did the, the entire Bush Bin Laden family. Did the Bush administration know this? They did it. What? They did it. They flew the entire Bin Laden family out of America. 
it wasn't done privately? They, they, our government did this? As far as I understand it, our government arranged for them to be able to get out of the United States. That's exactly as I understand it. If they didn't pay for the jets themselves, because the Bin Ladens have money, my whole point is this. They would never have let your families and my families leave this country if we brought a building down. I'm telling you, you know it and I know it. I'm not saying that the Bin Ladens were guilty of anything. I'm not saying the family shouldn't have freaked of, of you know, worrying about somebody killing them then after this. But what I'm saying is, in a magnitude of an investigation like that, why on earth would our government willingly let them leave this country? So the 28 pages now, there is a lot of pressure to release the 28 pages, Republicans and Democrats. How close do you think we are to finally learning the truth? Oh, I don't think they're going to release the pages. I mean, you can't tell the difference between Barack Obama and, and Jeb Bush when it comes to some of these things, when it comes to drones, when it comes to the, the, the fear factor, when they want to use it, when it... You know, you, you can't tell the difference between the two of them. And I think this is the same thing. Obama preached more transparency. He didn't want the cover-ups like Bush had. He screamed of transparency. It doesn't exist once you're in there. Because I think that, that the powers to be, the rogue elements of our intelligence services, sit the president down and say, oh, by the way, here's what's in there. And you can't say this and you can't say that. And if you do it, oh, my goodness, blah, blah, blah. And it's all tied to, you know, any time you turn around, you've got a Saudi government uh, entity involved somehow, including the created, creation of ISIS. They created ISIS because they want the Iranians and the Syrians gone. We played into that whole hand, too. All right. Now, let's, okay, a couple things here. You have a lot of history in the Middle East and Southeast mm-hmm. Asia, including you did security work of some sort in Saudi Arabia, my sources tell me. Is that true? Yes. I, I, we did uh, protection of uh, hiring some security guards along the pipeline. We also had a security company. Uh, the kingdom is a safe place, and it likes to stay that way. So, yes, we did that, too. Tell me about Saudi Arabia. Tell me something that the mainstream media will not tell us. Well, I mean, well, so, well I think, first of all, they're... Their involvement in using their money to, you know, they use their money to make themselves comfortable. In other words, they would bring Yasser Arafat in, give him a bunch of money and send him out. They actually don't take in Palestinians themselves. They like to say they support Palestinians. They won't let them live there, you know. In fact, one of the Saudis once told me, you've got more Palestinians in California, let them live there. And then, um, they have utilized their resources and money and power because they hate Iran with an absolute passion. They've utilized their money. But it's a very repressive kingdom. If you, in fact, I dare you to go to Saudi Arabia and pull a Bible out on the street. Go to Saudi Number two, the, people won't know this. If you and I want to go to Saudi Arabia tomorrow and we call the Saudi embassy, Dimitri, and we want to start a company or we want a tourist visa, they will tell us two things. One, there are no tourist visas. Number two, if you want to start a company, you have to have a sponsor that has to be a secret or out front member of the royal family. They have to own 51% of your company. You cannot own the majority of the company. Any Saudi can get on an airplane tomorrow, come here to the United States either as a tourist or they can come here and start their own business and own 100%. So there's something that nobody ever talks about. We can't do any of those things in Saudi Arabia, but they can do whatever the heck they want here. Now, I've read a lot about Saudi. The more I read about Saudi Arabia, the more I wonder why ISIS is bad and Saudi Arabia is our ally. Because I get the sense, Bob, that, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this. 
when you look at the totality of everything that the Saudis have done in the Middle East, in America, whatever, indirectly, as well as directly, with their money, with their influence, with their propaganda, my contention is, and correct, you, know, you tell me if this makes sense, that the Saudi Arabian government is actually a bigger threat to individual freedom, individual liberty, individual peace than ISIS. Absolutely. And, but it's like the shark. You know, your chances of being bit by a shark are small, but the thought of being bit by a shark is so horrible. Your chances in a car are greater to be killed. This is the same comparison, you know. Saudi Arabia will injure us directly or indirectly more than ISIS ever will. Now, we don't like the scary aspect of the machine gun fire and all the horrible things that comes with blowing buildings up. But Saudi Arabia just does it quietly. It, it, gets, it gets what it wants. It spends its money. It flexes its oil muscle. It's a really honestly a dying kingdom in the sense of it can't hold a candle to Dubai or Iran. By the way, that the Saudis, along with the Israelis, the Saudis combined with them, the Saudis, they, did, they didn't oppose the Iran deal because of, of religious reasons. Iran will become an economic power that will dwarf them. And Saudi Arabia is going to create a, 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 you know, a, a nuclear bomb. They can't even build a car over there. They build nothing. They, they build nothing. They can't build a car. They can't build a bullet. They can't make a bullet. Well, wait a minute, Al. I thought that there's this incredible civil war going on within the Muslim world in the Middle East, where you have the Sunnis on one side mm -hmm. with Saudi Arabia. I mean, that's where Mecca is, and I guess Med right. Medina or Medina. Medina, Medina. Uh, but, um, and then you've got Iran, which is Shia. Right. And that's that's the real issue: Sunni versus Shia, and Saudi Arabia's Sunni. Is that is that not the main well, issue? That that is a big issue. But never ever forget about Saudi Arabia. One thing trumps religion: money. Money in Saudi Arabia trumps religion. They may not say it, but money trumps all of it. Not to use the Trump word, but money trumps it all. So that's the deal. But yes, it's a Sunni versus Shia. But the Saudis have hated the Iranians. Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia created Wahhabism, and Wahhabism is the most radical element within all of Islam. It makes the Iranians look tame. Is that a it Sunni thing? Is Wahhabi a Sunni thing, though? Yes, it's, it's a specific Saudi Arabia version called Wahhabis, and it's a very, very, very radical version. And when uh, the early 80s, when I was there, the religious police were saying, why do you have these foreigners here? They have alcohol behind the compound walls, on and on and on. So in order to keep them at bay, the Saudi Arabians gave them a ton of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, and said, build your little madrasa schools. And some of that was exported to Pakistan. So Saudi Arabia always cures its own problem with money and creates another problem for us. So even beyond Sunni versus Shiite, Saudi Arabia is about money. And yes, they are a radical version, and they created this Wahhabism, and they exported it to Syria, and they helped create ISIS. Why the, why the hell are they our ally? Money, oil, oil, money. It's as simple as that. We turn our heads away. I mean, they have more atrocities than anything ISIS has ever done, as ISIS is horrible. And yet we, we seem to think, well, that Islamic State, radical Islamic State, is perfectly fine because they're our allies. Well, let's look at what they did. Syria wasn't going to attack Saudi Arabia. By the way, Iran wasn't going to attack Saudi Arabia. All right, They don't like each other, but they weren't going to attack Saudi Arabia. 
Uh, we would defend Saudi Arabia in 10 seconds. We, we marched into Kuwait, didn't we? Sure. While the Kuwaitis went to London and sat in big hotels and waited till we, you know, cleaned everything up for them. And so we did that. And I, hey, I got Kuwaiti and Saudi friends, so I'm talking about the government here. But <clears throat> the bottom line is that, you know, Saudi Arabia has all of this, this power. They have extreme fingers and power, you know, throughout our government. It transcends from, from Bush to Obama. There's no difference there. They're entrenched, and and they again they get what they want. They they created ISIS. They are a threat to us. They did create ISIS, and and it was all to topple Assad. Assad wasn't going to attack them. So what were they doing? Well, what yeah, were they why, doing? Why would they want to topple Assad if Assad certainly was not going to attack Saudi Arabia? Well, for them, they would rather fund their money into these radical elements that want to topple Assad. And that way they've got their radical friends in and they feed them money and their radical friends leave them alone and come get us. As long as they're left alone, they don't care. Well, wait a minute. I thought, I thought the reason the Saudis were backing ISIS to topple Assad is because Assad is a puppet of Iran, and that's Shia. I thought it was a political right. thing because of Iran. Well, look, it's yeah, they don't like the Iranians, and they're fearful of the Iranians taking any type of economic hold or any type of land hold. But at the time... Assad was there. Iran's friends with Assad. So what? What does that do? Iran's not going to attack Saudi Arabia. They're, they're friends with Assad. I mean, it really didn't honestly make a difference. Saudi Arabia wants to have its own elements in total control of a country, and that's you know they got into into there. Uh, they they went after this, and the Russians and the Iranians defend Assad. Now they might throw Assad out later. I don't know, but they do defend him. And here's the bottom line of that too. Saudi Arabia would have rather have us fight Assad, which we do. You know, we're always saying we're going to get Assad too. They would rather have us do that. Meanwhile, the Saudis funded the leaders who cut their opponent's heart out, held it up in the air, yelled Allah Akbar, God is great, and chewed part of the heart on video. I've seen the video. So this Saudi Arabia doesn't care about us. They just care about putting in to power their elements around them. That's really frightening stuff. Something else. Devices. Uh, something else that's frightening to me, and that is our role, the United States' role. What degree did we play in the creation of al-Qaeda and ISIS? And I'm saying, what role did America play in the creation of al-Qaeda and ISIS? Well... We did it. I don't think we did it by sitting down with a planned thing that's create this element that just goes crazy. But I think that the intelligence of people at the top of the intelligence food chain, I call them the rogue entities out there. They're in, they're in there. Sometimes even the presidents don't know what they do. Those people didn't care. It's like a chessboard for them. And you know, all this encouragement to go into you know, Iraq, et cetera. So I, I think that we, when we went in because of all the pressure you know, to do so, uh, you know, the Saudis, uh, they didn't like Saddam, et cetera. And, and all this pressure building up to go in, Halliburton and the industrial complex needed a good war again. And so the end result is we go in and we destabilize. I told Karl Rove to his face in the Capitol, to his face, Dimitri, when he said, you see, because I, I had complained about some of the methods that, that we were using. We had no extra strategy. And Carl said about democracy, and I, I looked him in the face and I said, you're going to get the democracy you don't want. 
Yeah. You don't understand these people. Yeah, just like just one like one side replaces uh, another. Yeah, like a Gaza West Bank. You know, you hold elections there. You want democracy. Well, you got democracy now. You got Hamas got or yeah. or got humus, it. as uh, Ben Carson would call it. All right, now, um, but I thought we played a big, the United States played a big role in creating al-Qaeda because we were gathering up all the crazies throughout the Middle East in order to go fight the Soviets in Afghanistan. Oh, well, this was actually our, our fault for creating um, uh, al-Qaeda. Is that true? Well, that is a plan. That was a planned part of it. They didn't think they would turn on us. You know, <laughs> we were, well, look, we supported Osama bin Laden. Yep. We supported him. He was doing the jihad. He was fighting the Taliban. Our enemy is our enemy. We supported the Mujahideen Kalk, the MEK terror group, Iranian terror group. We not only supported them, President Obama legalized them this year with the support of Rudy Giuliani and Howard Dean. We know those names, don't we? Yeah. Rudy Giuliani and Howard Dean were paid, look this up, paid $100,000 approximately each to support the, getting this terrorist group off the terror list. We took them off. Why? They hate Iran. So we love the MEK Mujahideen cult. Osama bin Laden, he hates the Taliban. Oh, we love Osama bin Laden. We don't ever look down the road, and we don't ever learn. So, yes, we helped create that. Then we, but then we did the final straw of going in and ripping uh, Iraq apart, and then, then we took all of their military, and, and Rumsfeld, Bush's Secretary of, of uh, Defense, took all the military and all the policemen and said, Go away. We're going to take you off the payrolls right now. 400,000 of you, your Saddam people, go away. And they went away with their guns and no money. And now they're and part so, of ISIS. Bathists are part of right, ISIS. Right. We never were able to recreate the military. Now, who is running right now the Iraqi government and the only thing that's keeping ISIS from being in Baghdad? The Iranians. We may not like that. We might not like the Soviets. But our thinking is so warlike. Here's John McCain and Lindsey Graham. You know, the, the dynamic duo. I'd like to put them in a jet. And John McCain hasn't been a maverick since the film came out. And put them in a jet and send them over there. These guys are saying, okay, tell them President Obama. And he buys into this stuff. Go get Russia. Topple Assad. Uh, make nice with the uh, freedom fighters who cut people's hearts out and eat them on YouTube. And um, kill ISIS. Okay? Do those four things. We are so stupid. I mean, I, I, I don't know where our thinking comes from. We can't do all those things. We never and learn. That's, that's the worst part. We never learn. It's like we, we don't learn. It's Groundhog Day every friggin' time. You it's like it. again and again, and it's the same. It's the same concept. It's the same. Well, this time, we'll go in there. We'll destroy everything. We'll get rid of their government. We'll do it right. We'll give them democracy, or we'll do this, or we'll do that, and we'll take... And it's all I mean, Libya, and even Egypt, for heaven's sakes, and, and of yes. course Syria and Afghanistan. And my word, it never ends. We sat there. You know, I had breakfast with Hosni Mubarak. I don't mind telling anybody. I flew to Egypt and had breakfast with him. We're sitting there. Hey, you know, was he perfect? No. Neither was the Shah of Iran. So we said, well, why do we support bad guys? Well, he was president of Egypt, you know, whether anybody liked it or not. And so there, you know, one day you're having breakfast with Hosni Babar, the next day we're, we're kicking him the heck out of Egypt and putting the Muslim Brotherhood in control. It's, it's, ma it's where, utter where, madness. Uh, tell where me a we little, come from? Yeah, tell, uh, where, where are we going? You go to Iran. This fascinates me. You're one of the only, in fact, you're probably... You probably are the only person I know who who speaks Farsi, the language of Iran. Iran. You've no. been to Oh, it's pronounced Iran. Excuse it's me. Iran. Yeah, actually, Iran. 
it was originally uh, it, it was originally Persia, and the Shah's father felt they were genetically in tune with the Germans. They came from the German bloodline, and they named it Iran, which means Aryan. Iran, Aryan. Yeah. Seriously. Uh -huh. Oh, I did not know that. Oh, uh -huh. that's even creepier. The Shah was a horrible. he was a horrible man. He really was. No wonder they hate us. But you're in Iran. Now, when's the last time that you were in Iran? Oh, I can't. I can't. I haven't been there since I left in 1978 when the revolution started because I I, I couldn't go back. Oh, okay, all right, fair enough. Uh, but um, now I I did have direct dealings with uh, the you know the man who negotiated um, uh, the deal in Geneva. Yeah. Uh, I I had direct uh, meetings with him. Uh, me me and several congressmen did, including Joe Biden's people. We had direct uh, meetings with him when he was at the United Nations. Why is our government so willing to allow Iran, Iran, excuse me, mm -hmm. to build uh, a bomb? Well, actually, at the time when I gave Karl Rove uh, a secret agreement brought to me by the then, uh, his name's Guleman, the ambassador from Switzerland to Tehran, he's a Swiss, came into my congressional office, walked in, and handed me a document. I outline this in my book, Sideswipe. And I just, I'll just i make a point because I, I want to answer this. And in that document, I looked at it, and I said, is this for real? And he said, yes. He flew all the way from Tehran with it. I gave it to Karl Rove, which Karl Rove denied. And the day I was heading to prison, Tony Snow, he's deceased now, the press secretary, when confronted, because I said I did give Karl that document, I sent it to the White House by courier, and Tony Snow said, oh, Bob Nay, look where, he's, look where he's headed today. How do you believe him? Later on, guess who verifies for me? Colin Powell's former chief of staff, thank goodness, verified that, yes, he saw these documents. So anyway, the document was going to be where Iran would recognize, um, uh, basically indirectly recognize Israel. It would uh, disband uh, Hezbollah as a uh, just a political entity, not uh, a social entity, not uh, terrorism. Uh, by the way, the Saudis have fallen into that trap. You know, they help create Hamas, you know, to occupy the people's minds. Sure. Like we, yeah, they did that too, and that backfired. So anyway, and then the other part of it would be that they would get their, their money back, and in that agreement, they would physically allow American inspectors on the ground in Iran. An amazing document, right? Sure. If we had, if we had done that deal at that time, Iran had 1,000 centrifuges. That was it. 1,000 centrifuges. Why didn't the Bush administration go for this? They had, this is as I understand it, they had a huge internal debate over this thing. Huge. Now, Condoleezza Rice lied at the Senate hearings and said she didn't know about this document. That's a lie. Period. Um, of course, she, <laughs> she's not the brightest light bulb in the package. But they had uh, a big internal debate, and basically Cheney won. You know, they were not going to make any deal with Iran because he wanted to bomb Iran. And the next target was Iran. We used to say that Bush just, when they said bomb Iran, he misspelled it I-R-A-K instead of I-R-A-N, and that's why we bombed Iraq, because, you know, Cheney gave him the, the wrong verbiage. So the end result is they, they denied it, and they, they didn't want any part of the agreement. So we could have stopped the centrifuges. The centrifuges grew. Now, if you look at... Benjamin Netanyahu's speeches to the United Nations, within three months, Iran's going to have the bomb. That was in 1993. 
you know, within three months, Iran's going to have the bomb, 1997. It, it just never brought credibility. Meanwhile, they continued the program. You can't trust the Iranian government. I'm not saying you trust them, but we could have contained them way, way back then. And then all of a sudden, you know, we didn't do it. And then now we do it and allow them to have, what, 6,000 centrifuges. The madness is unbelievable. Yes, the, only thing more, the only thing more maddening, Bob, is you. Now, a little background here for my listeners. I, we met when I was uh, the morning host on a big deal radio station in West Virginia. You were right across the border in Ohio. We got to know each other. Always liked Always thought you were great radio and all that kind of stuff. We agreed on some issues and disagreed on others. But I always liked you. Always, You were always great radio. You still are. I mean, I, just, I absolutely love talking with you. I really, I, I really do. I mean that in a manly, non-threatening sort of way. But still, you know because I know you and that uh, naked gay guy, which we'll get to in just a bit. But um, the thing is <clears throat> that I was so upset when I read, learned that you were involved in this horrendous scandal. And then at first I thought, oh, please say it isn't so. Please say it isn't so. And then you plead guilty. And oh, sure. then it got worse. Tell Give us a thumbnail of what on earth were you thinking? Well, also, I do want to mention that my I had two charges that I pled to. The one charge has been found unconstitutional, 6-0, to zero by the U.S. Supreme Court, so I couldn't be charged with that today okay. And because they, they couldn't charge me with bribery. So I was charged with falsification of a federal document, which, by the way, wasn't a federal document. It was, now, I'm not dismissing myself. I just want to get, give you the facts. It was a congressional internal travel form. <laughs> it wasn't a federal document. But right. I pled to it. Once you're done, you're done. Okay? I could have rolled the dice, and we felt we could have beat them in court if I had $3.2 million. On top of it, I was, you know, horrible, horrible alcohol problem. Now, that didn't cause me to do what I did. It clouded my judgment. But as far as giving up... All the stars were aligning. I was done. But what really cinched it for me, and I really thank him. I don't, I can't stand him, but I thank him for it today. John Boehner called me and said, "Get out of this election 70 days before. I'll raise you money. You can put this behind you. I'll get you a job." And he said, "I'll help you pay your legal fees, and you can end all this." He said, "You got 24 hours. I won't give you the offer after that." I said, "Okay." Called back, talked to him. And uh, that's what happened. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't get the janitor to call me back. There was no job. There was no legal defense money. Within 10 days, the government called my lawyers and like, we're going to charge him with 65 things. <laughs> so that's th the final thing. If I, let me put it this way, and I'm glad this didn't happen. If I would have had $3.2 million, and if Boehner would have done what he said he would do, a job and legal defense money, I probably would have fought this. I probably would have fought it. And I probably would be dead by now of you know, alcohol poisoning or, you know, mentally ill or whatever by the time you finish with this stuff. So I just gave up. Um, how, much you know, were, just, how, much, how much were you drinking? Well, I was drinking at the end, oh, a lot. I mean, the What's stress levels were, I mean, just constant, you know. Uh, are we talking constant. a bottle of Jack Daniels a day? Are we talking a case of beer? What, what well, I was, Yeah, a case of beer. I wasn't a big Jack Daniels guy, unless I ran out of beer, yeah. What kind of beer yeah. did you like? Uh, Bud Light. Bud Light. And you would drink a case a day, realistically? Oh, yeah, realistically, sure. Sure. What? Why, sure. why were you... How long was this going on? Well, I would say it intensified 
2000, when this started, 2004, in the middle of 2004 to 2006, I would say around that period of time, it just absolutely just skyrocketed. And, uh, you know, that was my answer to trying to keep up with everything that was going on, which was not a good way to keep up with things. When did, That's people, why, yeah, when did people start talking to you about, you know, Bob, you, maybe you shouldn't drink a case of uh, Bud Light a day? They never did. Oh, towards the end, yeah, my lawyers, uh, they're like, look, we can't, you know, we can't let you make a plea like this. You have to be, they said, we should lose our law license if we let you make a plea in your current condition. So they called the government and they said, uh, look, we're going to put him in rehab and then, you know, he's got a big decision to make. And they said, well, well, no, we're not going to buy that. We, we want, we want a plea now. And our lawyer said, well, look, you know, you can announce we're going to do a plea, but we're not doing it. He said, I can't let Bob do a plea in his current state of mind. They go, okay, well, as long as you let us announce it. So Alice Fisher announced it. Now, there was a method to her madness. She needed her appointment to be unlodged from the Senate. She was criticized for not doing something about Abramoff because she was friends with Tom DeLay's law firm. Okay, but back, back, back to you. I'm, I'm really yeah. intrigued about your personal story Right now, Abramoff and the rest, Abramoff, yeah. forget but, but what I'm What I'm saying to you is that yeah. all of those factors, Alice needed me to go away to get her appointment. So the intensity level on top of, you know, drinking extremely heavy, on top of draining the campaign account of $500,018, I owed the lawyers a million dollars, and I needed $3.2 million to go to trial, and John Boehner promised me to raise money, and that all fell apart. So you add all of those together, and it was like, okay, I raised the white flag. Hmm. I, you know. What, what and then, of then we started a poker game with the government. They went for 12 years. Okay, back to your, back to your personal story. Uh-huh. How did your drinking affect Liz, your wife, the kids? What, what, what was going on in the Nay household? Well, I mean, there wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm lucky, I mean, there wasn't anything where I was throwing things across the room or such things, you know. It was just isolation, uh, sitting, uh, drinking to oblivion. Uh, I wasn't driving. So luckily, luckily, I say, I had none of those ramifications, but obviously I was like a zombie. I was, I was almost non-functional. Did your family try to intervene, saying, okay, you know, you're insane, something's going on here, or were they enablers? Well, most of my family really didn't know. I was out in Heath, Ohio. You know, you tell them you're busy and things like that. Uh, my wife, no, she never said anything uh, at all. Uh, she was just worried about what was going to happen to us, period. You know, you, you, some, that, that creates enabling. Sometimes this happens. People just think, okay, I better leave things as they are. They'll get better, you know, Um I'm in the process of writing a, a book about about this, about alcohol and, and recovery and things, and and a lot of it occurs. I've, I've seen it time and time, including myself, where you know nobody really says, "Oh," because you know I wasn't burning the house down, wasn't throwing things at the. I only had one child living with with me then. I wasn't throwing things. I was isolating. You know, you you, you get manipulative where oh, I'm going to bed, and actually you're you know just hold up there drinking, and uh, you know. Your wife doesn't want to create waves in some cases, and yeah, so it's it's a. I won't call it a, a, an enabling where they meant to enable, but it was enabling because they felt powerless. Probably. When did you hit your bottom? 
Oh, I think I hit. I know when I hit my bottom. I well, there was uh, hitting my bottom in a point of clarity, which is different. I hit my bottom uh, when, in fact, I decided that I was going to just kill myself because if I died prior to leaving office, uh, my kids and my wife would get a ton of money because I had insurance policies. Once I left office, those policies were void. So I decided that was the better way to do it. And I think that was my absolute bottom. That was the signal that, man, you know, something's got to give one way or the other. Now, the point of clarity is... Wait a minute, whoa, 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 before the point of clarity. How, were you, how was Bob Nay going to kill himself? Oh, I planned this one out. I was going to go, this was a great one. I mean, I look back at it now, and I'm like, wow, what a nut. Um, I was going to go in front of the Justice Department. I would have mailed one letter. I would have had a letter with me. The press would have found it. And it was just going to accuse George Bush of you know, all kinds of things, of the fact, you know, Carl Rove, uh, plotted this to get Alice Fisher appointment, which was, you know, they used my uh, insanity to, to their benefit. I was going to outline all that. As I have in my book, I've got a chapter called Pretty Alice that outlines all of this in detail. So I was going to do that. I was going to talk about uh, John Boehner and, uh, you know, how he was part of uh, getting me to get out so that uh, then he didn't have to actually perform a job and I was completely weak, I had no money, and I would get indicted, and everybody was happy that two bad guys went away and delay, delay, and everybody else, Bush's people, walked, because Carl Rove was up to his butt with Jack Abramoff. So anyway, I was writing, I was going to write all this in a letter, then go shoot myself in front of the Justice Department. That would have affected George Bush for about five minutes, looking back on it. But where, that, was where, my, that was my rationale, that was my, it seemed pretty good to me, All right, where, in where, that state of mind. Where were you going to get the gun? Oh, I had a gun. I had guns. What stopped you from killing yourself? Actually, I had went over and I had, to well, no, a neighbor had knocked on my door, Matt Parker. He was a guy that ran my campaign. He now has a, he created a very successful uh, political consulting company afterwards. And Matt knocked on my door. And I had a cup of coffee with him, and then that just kind of did it. And then I talked to my lawyers, and I had mentioned, just on the, Slight to my lawyer, Bill Waller, I said, listen, you know, uh, my family would be better off if I was done, gone. And he got Mark Tuby on the phone, who was uh, Ken Starr's assistant, by the way, at one point in time in his life. And Tuby got on the phone. He's like, listen, I'm not judgmental. I've had alcoholism in my family. You know, you need to come out here. We need to talk to you. And that's how it started. And Ellen Ratner was pushing, too, heavily for me to go into some type of rehab. So that was that was the bottom, and then that's how I started to climb back out of it. What's the moment of clarity? No, uh-uh, that wasn't the moment of clarity. That was the that was the bottom. That was the either put the gun in your mouth in front of the Justice Department or do something. That 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 was the bottom. The moment of clarity came three days later, because I went to Cleveland Clinic. My insurance didn't pay, and I left the Cleveland Clinic after uh, two days. And I, my mother had emergency surgery. My sister told me she may not make it, so I went down to the hospital, drove down. I ended up uh, being at the hospital. Mom got through her. Uh, she had really tough surgery. She, she was 80-some. She got through the surgery. I left there to come back to Heath, Ohio. I drove past Cambridge, and at Route 209 exit was one of my favorite bars called The Point. I used to drink with a bunch of uh, political buddies there. I got off the exit. It was about... 10 at night, I got in the parking lot, and then I started to think, okay, now I'm two days sober, which to me, I was like, okay, I'm cured. Hell, two days sober, oh my God, you know. And um, 
So I sat there and I thought, okay, uh, I've got a guy that works for me, John Bennett, and his wife Janice live down the street. Cause I'm going to go in there and just have a few. But well, why did I have to think about John and his wife? Because I knew I was going to get loaded. Now I'm under, I'm under a deal with the federal government. I'm negotiating. I'm, you know, I've got news reporters from the national news in my backyard, and he's following me, following my daughter to school, going into my son's pizza job, and they threatened to fire him if they came in one more time. I've got. All of these things going on. My entire life is collapsing, right? So what do I do? I'm in a parking lot of a bar. I'm about to go in and get a drink, which will lead to 1 to 2 to 10 to 15. That was my moment of clarity where I'm like, okay, I'm insane. I'm, I am insane. And I left that parking lot, drove to Heath, told my wife I'm going to get on the phone. I started calling um, rehab places, and I found Woods at Parkside and went in there that morning. What was the that biggest, was my moment of clarity. What was the biggest breakthrough when you finally were sober? Well, sobriety is a continuing process, but the, well, then I went into a federal uh, program inside the prison. I was lucky enough to claw my way into that because that wasn't going good. Uh, you know, I, I was kind of getting screwed in the federal prison by the rehab people, and but I got into that, and then that's I think where you get you know you get a lot of clarity. That's why. Today I support rehab for prisoners because, you know, it's not about just not using. It's about, you know, thinking through everything and and 12-step programs and things like that. So, But that was the, the rehab was very, very helpful. So that it just gets better. But I think it takes a year to defog, I call it, a year of non-use and working a program to defog to where you're finally like, what the hell was I thinking? Yeah. So tell me now, you were living under the same roof with a naked gay man for a long period of time. Tell us about that, and how did that affect your marriage? <laughs> Richard Hatch, we weren't under the same roof. He was in another section of the prison completely. But uh, uh, Richard would go to at the main line, uh, what's, what we call main line, which is a cafeteria. He would go in there, and he really became, I'm um, not trying to, criticize the guy, but he became so obsessed about filing these motions to get out of prison, he would come into the main line and and just say to everybody, I'm getting out tomorrow, they're letting me out tomorrow, and he, he did that for months and months and months. And finally he got out after I was released, and then he got in trouble, and they I think they took him back in for a while. He went on a show he wasn't supposed to in the morning NBC News or something. Yeah, now Richard Hatch being the first winner of Survivor, who is right. openly gay, walked around naked, they pixelated He's not him. in the prison, he didn't. Oh, well, okay. Uh, oh, oh, they yeah. don't tolerate that in the prison. Uh, he didn't do that. He did that on the on the survivor show. All right, but he wasn't your cellmate, but you lived under the same roof with him in the same in the same prison system there. No, and, there were yeah, but there no not under the same roof. There were five actually a friend of mine was a cellmate with him. But there were there were five um facilities in the complex uh, and you can't go into those facilities. You can't if you're in one of them. I was in Girard then I was in uh, the rehab center. You can't go in other facilities. What was so, the, yeah. What was the worst? Was what, was the, what was the worst thing about being in prison, Bob? Well, the worst thing, and, and I know what people say, and I just want to kick them in their private parts for this. When people say, "Oh, country club prison," that doesn't. That Barbara Walters story doesn't exist anymore. They are not country club prison. Now there's maximums. 
there's camps. Camps are very, very easy. You sort mail and stuff. I was in a minimum with 1,300 people. Now, I will tell you, privately, the government didn't want me there, by the way. Privately, we got the word the government wanted to send me to a camp of 100 people in Florida, Pensacola, Florida. Wouldn't you wonder why? Well, yeah. I'll tell you why. I don't care what the public thinks about how bad a guy I was and, you know, me and, and Abramoff were the biggest gangsters in modern-day history in the Congress. If I went into prison and something's happened to me, I had a ton of friends on both sides of the aisle. I've been welcomed back to the Capitol since I've been out. I had a ton of friends. If somebody, like, cut me up in prison or something, you know, Congress was going to come down pretty heavy. I, I had friends that would have come down heavy. The government was worried something was going to happen to me. I had co-authored the Sudafed law, for example, when you buy too much Sudafed, you can be put in prison for it. I co-authored drug bills, all right? So, um, but I wanted to go to Morgantown. I, I didn't want to go to Pensacola, Florida. But anyway, as far as the, as the prison goes, the worst thing is you you know you're told what time you will go to bed you're told what you will eat you're you, you are completely controlled so for me the worst part was not you know not the lack of dental care i lost a tooth while i was in there it wasn't that it wasn't the horrific wilted food and and the boxes marked not for human consumption it's not that cuz i know what people think give them crusty bread and water you 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 guys deserve it the worst part is you lose your freedom and and you sit there and you're an adult who's being told, you know, what time you will sleep, what time you will wake up, where you will eat, what you will eat, and where you will walk and where you won't walk. It's just a loss of freedom. That's the worst part. Now, on a personal level, the very first day I walked down and I got really dissed by the warden who was screaming and and, and yelling obscenities about me and um, wanting, you know, me to be on my own, don't give me the courtesy of telling me even where I was going to, uh, which unit I was going to be in. But... A guy turned to me and he goes, are you that congressman? And I said, I used to be. He said, you put me in here, you rotten blankety-blank. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you co-authored a bill for drugs. You put me in here. And I'm like, uh-oh. I better change from thinking of what do I want to do when I get out to just surviving one day at a time. So what happened? Well, I used, you know, a humor. I, I made a lot of friends. I tutored people with the GED. I kept myself busy. I tutored people with GED. And frankly, I tutored some pretty bad people. <laughs> when I say bad, you don't mess with them. I tutored the, uh, the black Muslims with some Arabic uh, uh, words that I, you know, I learned in Saudi Arabia, some pronunciations. I did that. Um, I was with the minority community a lot. I sat at lunch with them. Not, not all necessarily on purpose, but I didn't, you know, I just made the best of what I could do it. Now, we had an official that Rahm Emanuel and, and Chicago daily, I should say, screwed, and he got into prison. He was terrified. I mean, he used to literally be, his hands were shaking because people looked at him as just this privileged white dude. He's in here. He was a politician. Who the hell does he think he is? And they used to give him a rough time. They used to say things. Now, I had guards who would say to me, you think you're going to get out of here? You're not going to make it out of here. I've had a lot of that happen, but I blended in with the population pretty good, <clears throat> made friends. And, uh, Why did, wait, 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 wait. Why didn't some of those people try to kill you because you co-authored the bill that put him in prison? Well, because they're in a facility where, you know, they might have two or three years to go. So, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily do that. I was also a Sims prisoner. It's called Sims. You're marked like a policeman would be in prison. There were some policemen in prison, you know, there. A Sims, they, they kind of watch you. They don't do special things, but they watch you. Where are you at? You know, they listen. If somebody was going to try to get me, this is how prisons work. 
they would tell a friend of theirs, and that friend, in order to get extra food at the commissary, would tell the prison officials. Hmm. <laughs> That's how it works. Okay. Why didn't you just go to the one in Florida for a, with 100 people? A couple of reasons. One, it was far away. Two, here's why I looked at it. My lawyers kind of laughed at this. I said, listen, I can go to Florida. I know it's much easier. It's not going to be, you're not going to be running around Florida towns or anything, but you're, you know, it's much easier because there's 100 people at the camp. I said, I could go down there and there could be like 100 idiots. And I'd rather go to a population of 1,300. You know, I, I could tutor people. I could help them with GEDs. I can do a rehab program. I, I'd rather do that. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted, I would rather roll the dice. Statistically, you, you got probably more people that are decent to deal with. You could go down Florida, there's 100 people, and probably also they were all white-collar. White-collar guys in prison, Dimitri, if you, if you ever go to prison, which I hope to God you don't, but if you ever do, make friends with the blue-collar guys, I call it, the, the drug guys. They're street smart, they don't whine, you know, they, they try to get on with things, and the white-collar guys are like, I lost my house in Vail, oh my, what am I going to do? My wife's driving my Maserati, oh, you know, get a life. Good yep. grief. So, yes. Bob, what what are you doing now in addition to your radio work? Well, I do a couple of things. One, I do two days a week intensive. I call stations all over America, um, you know, Los Angeles, Florida, er everywhere, and I call in those stations. That's two days a week, and that starts at 6.30 in the morning, ends at 9 at night. I do have some breaks in between, okay? I do that. So that's my two days of, quote, work right there. Mm -hmm. And then what I do is I spend a great deal of my portion. I sponsor people in 12-step recovery program. I sponsor them, so I spend, I did last night. I met with uh, two sponsees last night, went to a 12-step recovery meeting. So I spend a lot of time during the week volunteering with a rehab center with people that are in recovery. So I do a lot of that. Um, work on odds and ends. I, I had five storage bins, Dimitri. And right now in the basement of my, of my apartment, I have the remaining 190 or 250 boxes of my life down there. So I go through that every single week because I'm going to have some kind of online auction of the memorabilia, including the signatures glass from Jack Abramoff's restaurant and my scorecard from Scotland. Nice. So nice. Like oh, that. so that's beautiful. Is Abramoff going to give you one of his hats that you can auction off on eBay or something? Oh, that hat! No, that's that was a Jewish thing he wore it because of Orthodox, but he picked the wrong hat. So I do that, and on top of it, I'm writing another book. So I work on that in a week, and I uh, I help with my parents. I go to Belmont County every weekend. Both of my children have moved back there. I have four grandkids, a fifth on the way. So I I spend so I'm I'm pretty busy, put it that way. And then in between times, I I go to uh, India. I love India. It's a great great place. We ought to s scrap China and just start dealing with India. They like us. You go to India. What do you, trip. What, do you, what do you do there? Well, when I first went, I had set up some meetings for Ellen Ratner, uh, who I contract work for, and I set up some meetings for her with the Dalai Lama. She met the Dalai Lama, so I went over there. And I went over for three or four months just to recharge my batteries back in 2010, just to you know, basically study uh, Tibetan and Hindi language, hang out, drink some tea, recharge my, my batteries. The, the next few trips I went, I wrote the book over there. It was easier. I'd go for a month or, or so at a time, and I, and I wrote the book. And then um, I finished the book. So the last few trips, I just, I just hang out. I've got some friends from Ohio over there who are working there teaching 
the Dalai Lama's people, and I drink tea, and, and I trek, and I hike, and I paraglide off the Himalayas. I've lost 68 pounds, uh, you know, since 2006. Oh, no, I did fail to mention, I started a company. I'm president of First Hand Farewell. The CEO is a former county commissioner from uh, Jefferson County, uh, Scott Kropinski, and he came up with a, an amazing idea, and I became president of that company, and we're creating this from the ground up called First Hand Farewell. So in my spare time, I do that. My goodness gracious. Now, I, I do have to ask, because a lot of times it's not what people say during an interview, but what they do not say. <laughs> Did Liz stick with you? Yes, actually. Well, Liz stuck with me, and then after I got out, we divorced. Ah, okay. Yeah. All right. I, I I was wondering, it's like, well, what's the rest of the story? Is she still with you, or whatever happened there? Okay. Yeah. Well, I can certainly understand that. And now you live in an apartment, no house? No house. No, mm. sir. Mm. No, I do I do not have the, you know, I'm complaining. You know, I know crusty bread and water, you should have spent 50 years there. I understand all that. I, I, I live in an apartment, and I'm happy with that. And... I was I was going to at this point in time move back to Belmont County, but good luck on paying for an apartment in Belmont County right now. Oh yeah, because of all the uh, drilling with the uh, pipeline and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Well, my my daughter moved from this. I moved everybody to Newark because I got shafted by then Speaker of the House Householder redistricting me to Jefferson County away to Belmont away. You know that story. Mm-hmm. And he wanted fifty five thousand bucks. I didn't give it to him. So. I uh, ended up, uh, I moved my family there. My my kids have all moved back with my grandkids, so everybody's there. My sister, my mom, my grandkids, my kids. Hmm. But I'm still in Newark. Uh, <laughs> I was going to move back. I've got to tell you, though, I can't, for what I'm renting right now, man, if I make a little money, that's okay. You can't, a two-bedroom bad place in Belmont County is 1000 a month now. Good grief. You know now, that? Bob, let me ask you a couple of last things here, and I really appreciate all the time that you've given us. Is AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, as good as people say it is to help people stop drinking? Okay, there's traditions in in that group, and so you have to bear with me. I'm in a 12-step recovery program. The tradition of of AA says that you don't uh, actually say that uh, because of media and also celebrities say, oh, I went to AA, and then they they relapse. And Anyway, you can get the drift. I'm in a 12-step recovery program. And as far as if you're asking me an opinion on AA itself, dynamic. I think it is dynamic. And if somebody has a problem, go to 90 meetings in 90 days, get a sponsor. It's that simple to begin a recovery process. I think AA has done more than any government program could possibly have have done because most people cannot get in rehab either. So. Yeah. I think programs like AANA are just absolutely wonderful. And it's aa.org if people want more information. All right. Now, if people would like to get in touch with you, to follow sure. you, are you on yep. Facebook, Twitter? Yep. How do people get in touch with Bob Nay today? I'm on Facebook. My email is congressmannay at gmail.com, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S-M-A-N-N-E-Y at gmail.com, congressmannay at gmail.com. If you click that in. It'll bring you to my Facebook page. There's a public page, but that's just got a picture of me somebody created. But my page has a picture of, of me and my mom and dad. You can't miss it. And my, and my two kids on the mast. So, um, yeah, so they can do that, and they can have that email. And they can also hear you on the radio where again? Well, that's a problem because I call shows who syndicate out all over co- the country. So I don't know. Um, 
where I don't know they, they they're in Pittsburgh and they're in our area. I just don't know the individual stations. I call main stations and they syndicate out. Okay, fair enough. Bob, I always want to give my guests the last word. What would you like to say to our listeners? I actually put, put this two things. I put this in the book about you because when we had that big deal and, and it really turned the impeachment whole, the whole deal around and wheeling, and then the reporter said, "Why'd you have it with Dimitri?" And then CNN cut the live feed. I, I put that in the book. I, I, I've got to mention that it was hilarious. She hated you so bad. But what I want to leave with the listeners is this. When, you know, it's not how you fall, it's how you get back up. And it, and if you've got some substance abuse that you're going through, get help with it. And here's the other thing. It has nothing to do with what you do for a living. If something doesn't look right, it doesn't smell right, it doesn't feel right, don't do it. Trust your gut. Just don't do it. I don't care what your profession is, whether you're in Congress or something else. If you're dealing with somebody or something that doesn't feel right, walk away from it. Bob, I cannot thank you enough for thank your you. time your and, and your insights, and uh, I um, I do wish you well with the rest of uh, this journey of your life. It's a it's, it's a fascinating thing to watch. Uh, I uh, God, I can't, I can't imagine hey, I pre- what you've been through. I appreciate you also. I really, really do of what you do to speak out about what the government is doing to everybody. I really appreciate that. Believe me. All right, Bob. Well, look, yep. you take care. Give my best to everyone. And right. uh, we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again. Please stay in touch. And if there's okay. anything I can do to help you, you know, just ask. And I'll probably say no, but still, you can ask. All right? All righty. Thanks. Thanks, Bob. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. So what exactly is going on on college campuses these days? It's really amazing to me. It really is. It, it, it's like they're not even learning about freedom of speech. They're learning about how to suppress freedom of speech, restricting political speech. They're even restricting how people celebrate Christmas on college campuses. I mean, it really it's quite amazing. And not the least of which is the Ohio State University. They have a whole list. They've got a holiday practices, uh, inclusive holiday practices section that is just absolutely mind numbing. I've got a special guest for you who's going to be talking about this. His name is Pat Manley. He was a recent candidate for a state rep in Ohio. He's affiliated with a number of a uh, number of conservative political groups. He speaks uh, lots of different places uh, regarding his politics. He's a Tea Party slash kind of libertarian conservative guy. Good guy. Very good guy. He's also an architect with the Manly Architecture Group in Columbus. So, Pat Manley, welcome to my reality. How you doing, sir? Uh, good, Dimitri. Thank you for having me on today. All right. So what exactly first is going on at The Ohio State University? Because you are affiliated with that school. Uh, that's right. I'm a graduate of Ohio State and... I live in Columbus, Ohio, and I have um, I'm a member of the alumni organization, so I have a vested interest in the university. But things are changing very rapidly. Um, I used to think that Ohio State was pretty immune to some of the political correctness. Um, I think all of us thought that that was something peculiar to California or maybe New York, but. Um, would not be part of the Midwest, but that's changed quite a bit recently. And I believe a big reason for that is that we have a relatively new 
university president, and uh, he is from California, and he is bringing in a lot of new ideas and really trying to change the culture here at the university. Well, like uh, like what? Give me some examples. Well, uh, Dr. Drake, um, Dr. Michael V. Drake, who is the new president, and I've met him a few times, and he's actually personally a very nice gentleman, a very intelligent guy. He's a physician. Um, but he has come into the university, and he has um, a couple of, um, I guess, uh, mandates that he has created. And um, the biggest one that I see as being the most uh, problematic is that um, he comes in, and almost every time he speaks now, he talks about celebrating diversity as a defining characteristic and a source of strength. Those are his words, I believe. And what I find disturbing about that is because on the surface, diversity or inclusiveness sounds pretty nice, you know, where everybody is involved and everybody is is accepted and made a part of any uh, institution. However, what we're seeing all over the country, and we're starting to see it here at Ohio State, is the diversity tends to mean division rather than unity. You never hear the word unity uh, when they discuss diversity. And then inclusiveness oftentimes means excluding anyone who may have a different political view, uh, may have a different religious view or any religious view for that matter. And what I'm seeing and a lot of other individuals are seeing is that the university campuses and Ohio State is now one of them where these were considered safe zones for freedom of speech and new ideas and accepting even unpopular ideas is now becoming a place where ideas are being suppressed and freedom is being restricted not only in terms of you know, verbal language or the written word in the school newspaper, for example. But it's also being suppressed geographically, where the university and other colleges are limiting where and when students can mount protests or where they can do, you know, relatively innocuous things like hand out flyers or pamphlets uh, for their particular issues, and, well, can and it's you, really can, disturbing. Can you give me uh, some specific examples of what you're talking about? Uh, sure. Um, for example, Ohio State University, uh, they have, like any university, they have a lot of rules and guidelines and things that are, that are um, you know, updated from time to time. But Ohio State University has used the term for their guidelines as a living document, uh, which basically means they can change it anytime they want to. Um, so you really can't count on it. Um, but a real specific example that relates to the holidays is that they made a statement in their guidelines saying that decorations and food should be general and not the privilege of any religion. And that's such a vague but dangerous statement and basically what they're saying is that any type of decorations, which could be decorations on windows, it could be Christmas trees, anything related to religion, um, as well as food. And it could, it could be 
taken to mean something as simple as Christmas cookies, for example, or uh, foods that that are popular during the, uh, the the Christmas holidays that should not be um, reminiscent or reflect any type of a, re- a religion. And what I found what's interesting in here too is they use and not privilege any religion. Uh, the word privilege comes up a lot now too. Uh, we've all heard on the news um, and in a lot of newspapers they talk about white privilege, which um, I still haven't figured out where that's at. But um, again, it's a very uh, left-leaning liberal term um, that is out there. And now when they're talking about religion, they're tying together the word privilege and the word religion to imply that anybody who you know, holds any religious beliefs or expresses any religious beliefs are acting like they're a privileged individual and it's not fair to everybody else. And it's a really, you know, it's a really strange, twisted sort of a logic. But where I see the danger coming about on a statement like that is that the university is officially saying, hey, we don't care who you are, but if you want to, um, if you want to express your religious beliefs, don't do it on our university. Hmm. And that is so counter to, um, you know, the U.S. Constitution. It's so counter to what this country is based on. Um, I think it really has dangerous implications. And as things tend to go in this country, once a liberal idea or uh, maybe liberal isn't the right word, maybe a progressive idea that's restricting takes hold, then it tends to be built upon as, you know, over time. Yeah. Let me ask you a few things here. I I, I went to the, uh, the Ohio State University website and got the inclusive holiday practices um, link and looked at that. And Maybe you can help me understand because you're part of the alumni association there. You live in Columbus. You're, you cheer on the Buckeyes, I, I guess. By the way, sorry they couldn't make the, you know, national championship this year. But um, oh well. Well, we can't do it every year. Well, that's uh, that's true. Now here's the first thing that jumped out at me. This is again written. Uh, this is part of the inclusive holiday practices of the Ohio State University. The holidays are a time of celebration and giving. Okay, got it. Not a problem. This this next sentence to me is bizarre. Maybe you can help me understand this. In this spirit of celebration, none of us wants to intentionally show disrespect or disregard for the religious beliefs or non-beliefs of our students and colleagues. Well, disregard means that you don't pay attention to other people's beliefs. You essentially ignore them, leave them alone. They believe whatever they want to believe. And I thought that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. What am I missing here? Am I forced well, to, to pay attention to other religious beliefs? I mean, is, I thought that was almost pushing religion down my throat. I don't care about other people's religious beliefs. They're their beliefs. That's fine. I want to disregard them because I have no interest in that. Am I missing something here, Pat? No, I don't think so, because I I, I think that the issue really isn't whether, you know, you or anyone else 
has religious beliefs or does not have religious beliefs or is concerned or not concerned or in, even interested in somebody else's religious beliefs. But a phrase like that can be twisted around. On one hand, it could it could be stated or it beliefs that may be different than our own. But on the other hand, and I think this is the way that it's being used um, in Ohio State's guidelines as well as other guidelines um, across the country at schools like the University of Tennessee, Tennessee in Knoxville and Cornell, is that they're using it as an excuse to prevent someone from expressing their own religious beliefs. Um, and and that's where I think it becomes dangerous and it becomes very, very wrong. Um, and one of the things that, that I've noticed, too, over the last um, year, I would say, is that, you know, in the prior eight, ten years, we saw a lot of uh, language that included the word offensive. You know, we don't want to offend anybody or or something is offensive. Right, offensive or the offensive or the offensive coordinator, for heaven's sakes. Oh, yes. That's, yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> offensive coordinator. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is you very seldom, if ever, actually find anybody that says that they are offended by something. But what you always find are people in the government and in some of these uh, institutions claiming that people are offended, but you can never seem to find the offended victims. Uh, and, well, I'll, um, tell you, I'll tell you what I'm offended uh, by, and that is this next thing here under these Ohio State University holiday, inclusive holiday practices. It says here for decorations. Now, now try to wrap your mind around this. I still am not able to do it. Here's, here's the wording. It is important that we convey that the university is welcoming of all and overtly religious decorations are not appropriate in this setting. Well, which is it? If you want to welcome all, then why would you put restrictions on overtly religious decorations? It's like it, it's uh, they conflict with each other. It doesn't. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. In other words, we want to welcome everybody who thinks like we do. And uh, and then also, how do you you know take that a, a step further? What is an overtly religious decoration? Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Dimitri, but the last time I read the Constitution, I don't think it um, said anything about expressing one's religious belief as long as it's not overtly done. And, um, and, and again, this is where I think all this type of language leaves – it's so vague and so conflicting that it basically leaves the, the, you know, the people in charge – with the ability to interpret it any way they want, depending on the circumstances. Well, it gets worse. Under decorations for The Ohio State University Inclusive Holiday Practices. By the way, if you just uh, tuned in, I'm talking with Pat Manley, who is um, a conservative, Republican conservative from Columbus. Uh, he is an architect, Manley Architecture uh, Group, and also recent candidate for a state rep in Ohio and affiliated with a number of politically conservative groups and uh, a good guy, my Facebook friend as well. Here's the next thing that it says. Individuals or departments may choose to focus celebrations on neutral seasonal themes. 
greenery, white lights, snowflakes, bows, preferably not red or green, and similar motifs convey an inclusive holiday spirit. So they prefer that we do not use red or green. Any any reason for that, do you think? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's the exclusive um, territory for the football team. I don't know. Green field with red uniforms. Um, you know, that that's – I mean – if this wasn't so serious, you know, that paragraph would be comical um, because the irony about it is, is that, again, just like the one you, you, you pointed out before, is on one hand they're saying, yes, you can go ahead and, and do certain themes, but with these restrictions. But, well, yeah, exactly, and, and, and it's especially ironic for the Ohio State University because it says here for the bows and all that, for the uh, the holiday party, certainly not the Christmas party, preferably not red or green. And yet when you look at the Ohio State logo, one there are several, it's got a big scarlet O for Ohio State, and with some of them it also has a, a buckeye and a buckeye leaf, which is green. So you've got the red for the big O for Ohio State University, and you've got the green, like five leaves for the buckeye, the, the the Ohio State University logo is red and green. <laughs> I, I, what I are know, you saying? <laughs> based on that guideline, you wouldn't even be allowed to post the the Ohio State University logo, yeah, or at least that particular logo, um, anywhere around the around the campus during the holiday season. Right now, here's some. Yeah, go ahead. You know, the other thing that 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 I think that is ironic about that is they do use the term like seasonal and holiday and those sort of things. But, you know, for crying out loud, it's Christmas. It's the Christmas season. If we didn't have Christmas and the Christmas holiday, we wouldn't have any seasonal celebrations. So you can't, you can't separate one from the other. Yeah. Well, it gets worse here. It says under the next inclusive holiday practices for the Ohio state university, it says decorations and food should be general and not privilege any religion. Now think about that. Does that mean that I'm not allowed to bring kosher food and the Muslim version of kosher, halal, halil, whatever it happens to be? Because that food certainly privileges a religion. So are they banning kosher food? It sounds like that to me. And I know that you know, my friends who are Jewish would be very upset about that. Um, well, that's, that's just tough right. luck. They've got to be inclusive, and they can't be eating kosher food according to these guidelines, uh, inclusive holiday practices. Now, it says here also, decorations should be respectful and sensitive toward the diversity of our community. Can you name a Christmas decoration that is not respectful I can't think of one. What are they? What are they talking about here? I, I can't think of one either. But you know the, um, you know the high, the whole idea of when they say respectful again is sort of a spin on the the term offensive. And when you have, well, let me let me put it this way. I believe very strongly that in the United States of America, that freedom, especially Individual freedom is the number one priority. It, it should be the number one priority, and it should be what we protect first and foremost. 
and underneath of that individual freedom is certainly religious freedom that goes in there. And the way I look at it is as an American, if I'm truly an American, even if somebody has a belief or a religious belief, or let's just say, let's broaden that a little bit for freedom of speech, says something that I personally disagree with or find offensive, I very much support that person's freedom to speak those words or write those words or believe a certain way, even if I don't agree. And as you said a few minutes ago, you have a choice not to participate or, or you have a choice to disregard somebody else's belief. And so the the issue should always be that we protect an individual's right to express whatever beliefs they have, but we choose not to participate, and we should be tolerant enough, we should be American enough um, to tolerate, you know, people or events that we don't agree with. And like you said, when it comes down to Christmas, I mean, really? Is Christmas really offensive to anybody? Apparently it is. Apparently it is to uh, quite a few people, and I... And I, 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 all of this just just causes me to scratch my head, and it's not because of the heartbreak of psoriasis. It's just it's just so confusing to me. Let me ask you about some other things. You had sent me some notes that you uh, wanted to uh, about some things you wanted to discuss, including tell me about the University of Illinois in two thousand and eight. Um. Well, you know when you've got um, a university. Well, they wanted to ban uh, staff and students from wearing, what, political buttons or bumper stickers on their cars? What was that all about? Yeah, I mean, again, it goes it goes down the same path as, um, you know, as any of these other restrictions. And various universities and various government groups, and um, I don't think that any um, – you know, any types of um, organizations are immune from this, you know, that have some type of government funding in it. But, you know, basically, again, it's a on the ba- – they do it on the basis of not offending anybody or not trying to show preference towards a certain issue or candidate or uh, political topic. But, but in practice, they use those means and methods to um, restrict – the freedom of speech, and um, and they tend to always focus on any kind of public display. You know, they never really go far. They never really go so far as to say you can't believe in something, but they always find ways to um, restrict the um, restrict the public display of uh, you know of any type of um, any type of belief or um, or position anybody takes that differs from, you know, the more left-leaning progressive status quo. Okay. Tell me about the Bearcats. University of Cincinnati in 2012, they um, had some kind of issue with Young Americans for Liberty. What was that all about? Um, the uh, I don't know to be honest with you I don't know all the details of it but they, um, the Young Americans for Liberty is a um, is pretty much what it is it's a it's a college group it's um, 
you know, freedom of speech is one of their their main focuses. And um, the all they really wanted to do was to go around campus in different areas where students, you know, in between classes, hand out pamphlets, which I think were just not really even pamphlets. I think they were just sheets of paper that had information printed on it, and to talk to students about um, a ballot initiative. And um, what the what the University of Cincinnati did was they created a system where the students had to have a permit um, to be able to uh, actually, and it was a permit they had to pay for is what my understanding is, that they had to apply for before they could hold any kind of a, um, you know, political event or protest or anything like that. And they had about a two-week notice that they had to put in, which, if you think about that for a minute, I mean, aside from the fact that uh, requiring a permit uh, for something where only a small group of students are involved in, of how absurd that is. But the two-week period also allowed the university to control any really hot topics. In other words, if there was a, an issue that popped up nationally, for example, that students would, would um, be very concerned about, well, if they have to go apply for a permit and get the permit approved and everything else, you know, by the time two weeks go by, that, that um, that news item may not be relevant anymore. So it, it was a um, it was an awful thing to do for the university. They should have been smarter than that to begin with. But it also shows you how far they will go. And uh, the universities that are involved in this type of activity, I believe that their attitude is that they will push as far they will do whatever they have to do until somebody says they can't. Well, what finally happened, Pat? Well, the um, the Young Americans for Liberty, um, I, I think that the uh, mistake that the University of Cincinnati made is that they're well-funded, and um, so they're not just a local, you know, um, group of collection of students who get together. They're very well-connected. So they took it to court. Uh, they filed a lawsuit against the University of Cincinnati, and it was eventually taken to the federal uh, court, U.S. District Court, I believe, and... Um, and they overruled the University of Cincinnati. So, um, you know, fortunately the system worked in that case. Um, but that has not always been the situation across the country. And then sometimes the student groups just simply don't have the, you know, the means to, to be able to fight it. Yeah, also tell me about these security fees. What on earth is that? Well, um, security fees are usually uh, – let's, let's say that if um, – if Ohio State University had a um, a concert, okay, and um, and they do have rented out the leased out the um, Ohio State a few times in other areas, and let's say they have a a concert and a group is coming in and they expect a large crowd. Well, there's obviously going to be additional costs for the university, you know, for for security and. Um, you know, police and clean up um, after the event. And, um, you know, so in certain situations, I think security fees um, have a place. You know, I, I don't think it should be the burden of a university to pay for a rock concert, you know, uh, that's coming in. That, that rock concert group or that promoter should, should incur the cost. But, for example, at the... Um, University of Massachusetts um, Amherst, 
there was the College Republican Club, again a um, conservative group. They were charged a security fee um, because of the um, nature of the. Um, well, I, I shouldn't say this, but they were they were they were charged a security fee because there's an expectation that there was going to be um, a high turnout and that they were going to need extra security. And um, the fee was not enormous. It was about, I don't know, my recollection was maybe about $450. But for a small um, volunteer group of students, that's a lot of money, and it's very inappropriate um, you know, for that type of a situation, and they were not charging that to other university groups. It was only a uh, conservative slash libertarian group on campus uh, that got penalized. That's unbelievable. And tell me about the idea of civility policies and how that can be used against people that the university does not like. Um, again, that's one of those almost comical things Um that go, you know, that goes on. I mean, you know, the there's a lot of universities, and I think these policies have been in there for years, um, <clears throat> decades probably. That when there's discussions or events or um, any type of political activity on campus, there there's always been a desire to have the, you know, have it be peaceful and and uh, polite and you know, basically civil discourse. And, and and I think there's there's very few people that would disagree that that is not the goal and that it should be that way. But again, where a lot of this has gotten twisted around is you have um, you have some universities indicating or dictating that anytime anything is said in a negative manner toward about another group or another organization that that's considered uncivil and um and oftentimes considered hate speech to the point where um you know students are threatened the uh Can you give me an example uh, like um that happened uh, where is it San Francisco State is that right? Yeah, it was San Francisco State. Um that there was a uh, basically a group that organized again I think it was the the local the college republican group that they um organized a rally that was going to be an anti-terrorist rally and um they also planned to take um flags from those groups I think it was Hamas and Hezbollah maybe um that and they were going to take the the plan was to take you know destroy the flags or stomp on the flags and um and the students actually got um or they were threatened to be expelled because you know it was um uncivil activity and you know by the university's standards which is ironic because there have been cases at San Francisco State University where people have done demonstrations in years past where they've stomped on the American flag and nobody has said a word to them um, but suddenly stomping on flags for, for known terrorists is, is wrong. And, um, but again, some of these students were threatened to get kicked out of school. They, um, they filed lawsuits and they were able to prevent it. Again, it was one of those, uh, cases where the courts prevailed, but it should have never gotten that far. You know, the school should have never, 
um, done something like that. And I, I personally believe that the part of the reason in that particular instance that it happened was that the um, I think there's a lot of people out there across this country that actually fear these terrorist groups and they fear um, offending anybody because they're they're afraid that these people are going to hate them even more. And I hate to tell them this, <laughs> but these terror groups, I don't care what you do, they're going to hate us more and more as every day goes on. Um, and, but again, it comes down to the same basic thing, regardless of the topic. It's a violation of free speech, which is protected under the Constitution. And whenever we have these instances come about, um, you know, it, it just—it's just remarkable to me that they, you know, the, some of these colleges and sometimes the government groups—they just coming keep coming back again and again and again and again, and it's a never-ending, you know, for the rest of us, for all of us liberty-minded people. It's a nonstop, um, never-ending battle to be vi- vigilant against this type of, of suppression, and mm. it's really, really, really dangerous. Yeah, I'm talking with Pat Manley, uh, Manley Architecture Group, Columbus. He is a conservative. Uh, he is involved in conservative, conservative political politics in Ohio talking about The Ohio State University. Uh, He's based in Columbus, also talking about this political correctness on college campuses. So where do we go from here, Pat? What what are you going to do about it, and what can my listener do about it? Um, You know, I think that... I think words are very powerful. And oftentimes, you know, I think many people... And I I run into a lot of people that feel this way. When I was campaigning... Last year, I personally spoke to about 2,500 people on their front doorsteps. And what I heard over and over again was that that the people feel like they have no voice, that no one listens to them, that their representatives don't listen to them. And in the meantime, we have those very same representatives um, oftentimes turning their back on basic constitutional rights. So I think that the best thing we can do is talk to everyone we know, any opportunity we get. You know how they always say that you should never talk about religion or politics in, um, what's the the term, in company or in polite company? Um, I disagree with that completely, especially when it comes to politics, because I think that the more we talk about it and the more we discuss it and share ideas, that the more pressure and the more willing, the more that people will be willing to put pressure on their elected representatives, and then tied in with that is that I think I really wish that more people would get involved in politics. And um, you know, just for example, in um, both the Democratic Party and the uh, Republican Party, there is something called central committees. Um, they have different names sometimes, you know, in different states and in different parts of the country, but it, basically they're the same thing. And that's where an individual um, can run for an office and be selected to represent their neighborhood, basically, their ward or their precinct. And that's where the real power lies in these political parties to put pressure on the elected officials. But beyond that, I think that the a more you know that's more of a long-term solution but i think the most immediate thing we can do is that every time we 
encounter a situation where somebody's freedom of speech is um, being restricted, um, you know, even even in those times when we agree with the people that are restricting that speech, we ought to say, wait a minute, I think we need to stop. No, I don't like hearing about this, or I don't he- I don't like this person's belief, but that person has a right to say what they want to say and to well, believe what they want to believe. Let me let me let me go, uh, put you on the defensive here because you are a Republican. You're part of the Republican Republican Party in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Well, Ohio has a Republican governor, a guy named Kasich, who, by the way, is from the Pittsburgh area, from McKees Rocks. You've got a Republican-controlled uh, General Assembly legislature in uh, Columbus. So with all these supposed uh, family values, conservative, you know, this Republican control of everything, why do you have these kinds of problems on the college campuses such as the Ohio State University? Aren't, isn't the Republican government of Ohio in charge of this? Uh, Demetri, I think that's a very valid question. But you're absolutely right. At the, at the state level and in the General Assembly, um, it's not only controlled by the Republican Party, it's dominated by the Republican Party. So it's not even like it's a, uh, a close race. Um, but in Ohio, in, in Ohio politics, it's really not, in a lot of ways, not that different than it is in Washington, D.C. You have the, the liberal, very left-leaning um, elements, but then you also have a lot of people, and I don't, I don't want to blame every single person that's in the General Assembly, but you do have a lot of people in leadership who are not that much different than the Democrats that they rail against during election time. Well, who are we talking about here, Pat? Who are we talking about? Yeah, name names. Um, Governor Kasich, I'll, I'll pick him out. I, now, I voted for Kasich when he ran originally, and um, he seemed like a very level-headed conservative guy. His specialty, as we all know, is um, working through government budgets. That's really where his expertise is. But in a lot of other areas, he swings he swings far to the left. I mean, some people listening to the show may agree with some of the things that he, he wants to do, and that's fine. But the problem is, is that when you take somebody like the governor and then you take um, some of the people that have been or are in the leadership positions, and, and what I mean are the, by leadership are some of the people that head up the uh, you know the um, state senate, you know, like Keith Faber, you know, for example, um, who's the senate, you know, president. Some of these kind of people, their goal in life is to continue getting reelected, and it's not necessarily um, upholding these values and this fairness, and um, and, and holding up the the const- you know, upholding the constitution. It just isn't a priority for these people. And that's what I mean by saying that oftentimes you'll find that these people aren't that much different than the Democrats that they complain about um, because they're all, you know, their priorities are, 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 are self-promotion and self-serving. Sounds and like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think, aren't, aren't we all to a certain degree? I mean, um, yeah. you know, like I had just last week, um, I had somebody... Uh, I was talking to say, well, that's just your opinion. And and the only answer I had for him was, well, yeah, that's my opinion. And and my opinion is the most important opinion to me. 
And um, and I think everybody can say that, and, and that's true. But you know, but the reality of it is, is that when we have elected officials, and I don't care if they're at, at a village level or city level or township or state or in Washington, the number one priority should be representing the people. And um, and by representing the people, what I mean is upholding the Constitution and upholding these freedoms. And to me, you know, it shouldn't really matter so much whether somebody is a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or a Green Party member or whatever that might be as long as we all operate under the same primary belief system under the Constitution. And that just isn't there. And when I look at, you know, going back to your question about in the state of Ohio, when I look at the state of Ohio and I look at Washington, D.C., and not see a lot of difference between the two, you know, I see a Democratic Party who is doing their best to unhinge the Constitution, and I see my own Republican Party and I and you know don't make any mistake I'm a loyal Republican um, and I believe in the Republican values but there's a lot of people that run the Republican Party at a lot of different levels that no longer adhere to the written Republican platform and the reason that we're here as a party and I you know I I, I can't um, I don't want to say I can't deal with that I can deal with that. But I'm going to fight against it until one day that is turned around again. Well, let me ask you a question, because you are well-connected to Republican circles in Ohio. Everything that you've described here, could that be why Donald Trump seems to have a very strong following in Ohio? Yes, I think that that would be true. Um, the one thing about Donald Trump is that because he is so opinionated and he's not afraid to say in public the kind of things that you're only used to hearing in the bar from the guy on the bar stool next to you, um, you know that that resonates with a lot of people because he is saying the same things that have been on their their minds for a long time, and the other. The other attribute that Donald Trump has is that he has an entire life's history of getting things done. He starts a project, he's um, and he finishes it, and he has, you know, for the most time, he's been successful at it. So he's not, he doesn't, Donald Trump doesn't have it in his nature to say he's going to do something, then turn around and do something else. Uh, he's the kind of guy that that follows through, and I think when you when you take that personality trait or that life history and combine that with, um, you know, the fact that he's touching on, and you can call them populist beliefs or, you know, if you want or, or not, but basically, you know, he's out every single day um, hitting on things that the majority of the people believe in, and but their own representatives don't listen to them, then it's it's not a mystery why he's become so popular. Do you think he's going um, to win Ohio? I, I don't know. I mean, gosh, if I could make that kind of prediction, I'd be a gazillionaire. Um, I've never really felt – I felt I felt from the beginning when he first um, said he was going to run, when he first announced his candidacy, I felt that he would be in it for the long term. 
However, I've never really believed that he was actually going to win the nomination, and I guess I'm really not so sure that he is now. But I think that his biggest, the biggest benefit that he's brought to this, old, this whole campaign has been that he's not afraid to discuss issues. Immigration um, was the issue, was the elephant in the room for every candidate before Trump got involved. It was hanging out there. The media downplayed it at times. Uh, the candidates ducked the questions whenever they could, but, but Donald Trump came in and he began to talk about it. And then, and I think that's, that's going to be his, his legacy for this campaign. Whether he wins Ohio, who knows. Um, but I think that what he's brought to the process has been great because he's forced all the other candidates to come out into the, into the sunlight, discuss issues, take take positions and I think it's going to give the voters a much better um, you know sense of, of where the candidates are and, and give them more I guess more uh, tools to work with when they decide who they're going to vote for. Well Pat we're almost out of time so the number one question that I have to ask you at this point of the interview is is there anything else I should have asked you regarding the freedom of speech issue on college campuses that I failed to ask you? Um, the only question I can really think of is that for anyone out there who has um, who has children that are college students or are, go- or are going to be college students sometime soon, I would really highly recommend that you ask your son or daughter to report back any instances that they encounter personally or among their fellow students or just on campus of any instances where the university or any other groups are trying to restrict their their freedom of speech, um, their freedom of movement in terms of where they can and cannot, you know, demonstrate and and report back to them and you know so that the parents are made aware of this because the parents are one in most cases the ones that are uh sacrificing and paying a large chunk if not all of that college tuition so they they have in my opinion they have a right um to speak their mind and tell the university um you know call out the university when when they believe that the uh, administrators are in the wrong um, or have overstepped their bounds. And I think that that kind of communication would be, you know, back and forth between the students and their parents would be one of the most powerful tools they they can have. I know another one. I know another one. What about Pat Manley of Manley Architecture Group in Columbus making an appointment with Dr. Drake, the head of uh, The Ohio State University, sitting down with him and uh, having a, a frank discussion about political correctness? Well, I think that that's that's a very good suggestion. It's one of the things that um, uh, that we've tossed around, um, basically between my campaign manager and I. Um, and I think that that would be a good thing. And I won't rule that out. But whether it would be effective, I'm not so sure. And um, well, there is one there is one way to find out, Pat. It's to actually do it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe bring a few of your friends with you, and you know, a lot of Penn, or Penn State, excuse me, Ohio State graduates, and uh, you know, sit down with the guy, and also maybe sit down with Governor Kasich and say, hey, you and the head of the 
General Assembly there in uh, Columbus for you know the Senate and the House and have a come-to-Jesus moment with all of these, I guess they're, what, rhinos, a Buckeye version of uh, Republicans in name only? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, I, and I agree, because I think with the, the one thing about Ohio State University, um, it's no different than other colleges, is that their lifeblood is the, um, are the alumni. And um, if I can do that um, with several other alumni, and especially if I can bring alumni who really carry a lot of political weight and financial clout, um, then we might have a voice. Then we might, we might get their ear. Well, I certainly hope so. Now, Pat, uh, if people would like more information, if they would like to reach you, talk with you, get more information, whatever, how do they reach Pat Manley? Uh, there's a couple of ways. Um, my, the best email address to use would be contact at patmanley.org. That's C-O-N-T-A-C-T at P-A-T-M-A-N-L-E-Y dot org. Um, and then also, anybody can feel free to always call me on my cell phone, which is 614-496-9096. Once again, what is that cell number? 614-496-9096. Terrific. Uh, any last uh, thoughts, Pat? Anything that you'd like to say to the listener before the end of this interview? Well, I'd just like to say, Dimitri, to you that I really appreciate you um, inviting me onto your show today and addressing this topic, because I think free speech is the uh, linchpin of life in this in this country, and I really appreciate what you're doing, um, you know, for this right and um, the fight that you've put up for it for years. And um, I, I just want to thank you for, for everything that you do, and uh, also thank all of your listeners uh, for what they do and will continue to do in the future. Fantastic. Uh, Pat Manley, Manley Architecture Group, Columbus. Uh, Pat, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it greatly. I'll be um, communicating with you on Facebook very, very soon and very, very often. All right? Okay, that sounds great. I'll be looking forward to it, Dimitri. Thank you again. All right, Pat. Thank you so much. We have about uh, three minutes left to the show and time now for Dimitri Graffiti. Rules of engagement for Dimitri Graffiti. Here's the phone number, 213-943-3733. When you call the show, do not expect a producer to ask you your name. Do not expect to be asked where you're calling from. Do not expect to be asked what you want to talk about. Do not slander. Do not curse. Do not do anything illegal. And above all, do not, under any circumstances, try to interact with the host. Again, the phone number, 213-943-3733. We have about two and a half minutes left. and turning the show over to you now.